You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Paul writes in verses 12 to 20, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. I wonder if you'd pray with me and for me before we get started. Lord, be with us <coughs> as we look into your word tonight. Give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and hearts to know and love you at a deeper level. Father, help us grasp the word you have for us tonight. Um, and Help us take it into the week to come. In your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray. Amen. Um, we pick up Paul's letter here in chapter 15, his first letter to the Corinthians. We find Paul, as per usual, correcting some hugely damaging belief that some of the Corinthians appear to have. In verse 12, we see that some of the Corinthians are denying the biblical doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Not just Jesus' resurrection in 33, give or take, A.D., but the resurrection of all people at the last day when Jesus returns. This is a pretty serious denial, okay? This is not like some of the Corinthians are like, Paul, we're... We're reading Genesis together, and I'm just not sure those six days are 24-hour days like we understand them today. What you think about that issue is important, but faithful Christians can disagree on it. Faithful Christians cannot disagree on the doctrine of the resurrection. It is literally the historical fact upon which this faith is built. If you deny the resurrection... You don't have Christianity. You might have a nice little package of morality cozied up next to some new agey spirituality that talks about an emotional resurrection that one might have. <coughs> but if you deny the, res- the resurrection of the dead, deny a whole lot of other things by proxy. You deny justification. You deny Christ and his power and so, so many other things. So, That's why Paul comes off the top rope here, because this is an important issue for Christians to get right. In fact, some might say it is the important issue for Christians to get right. So that being said, this passage of Paul's breaks down into two sections as I see it. We've got verses 12 to 19, and then we've got verse 20. Here in this first section, Paul makes the case for the Christian idea of the resurrection of the dead by arguing that there are a whole lot of unintended consequences that follow on denying the resurrection. 
Within this section, though, I want to focus especially on verses 17 to 19 because I think it's really there that Paul kind of presses in on what a world without resurrection looks like for you, for you, and for me. Then in verse 20, Paul graciously ties our resurrection in together with Christ and meets the hopelessness of verses 12 to 19 with the hope of resurrection. If you've lived in the southeastern U.S. for very long at all, I'm willing to bet you've seen a viney plant with trifoliate or three-pointed leaves uh, growing sometimes on home exteriors, sometimes over brick walls, sometimes up and down trees, sometimes over and on everything that you see. This plant's called kudzu, and it's not at all native to the southeastern United States. It came from Japan and southeastern China back in the 1870s, and it was touted for its ability to grow quickly, to provide shade, and to maybe pump the brakes on soil erosion. All these things are are good things, right? The problem is, though, that kudzu grows so so quickly and easily that it crowds out other plants native to this area, and now folks can't get it to stop growing. Um, the story of kudzu it's like the story of these Corinthians it's a story of unintended consequences <clears throat> I'm not sure here in this text what, uh, what moves somebody to deny the resurrection of the dead this doctrine with a whole bunch of unintended consequences on the back end but I imagine they're not all bad impulses Maybe these Corinthians want to uh, make the Christian message more believable, right? Pre-scientific folks 2,000 years ago, right, uh, didn't know a lot of the things that we know today. But they knew one thing, and that is that dead people do not become undead. The doctrine of the resurrection of Christ and then of people later on sounded just as wild back then as it does today. It sounded just as contra to human experience back then as it does today. It's probably a big stumbling block for the folks that these Corinthians are talking to. Perhaps the Corinthians were trying to make the Christian message more culturally relevant. Um, Platonic schools of thought in ancient Greece would have seen the resurrection as just patently ridiculous. The ultimate goal of human experience for ancient Greeks was to leave your body and ascend into the world of forms, this kind of spiritual world in a different realm. So the idea that somebody would lay aside their body, head up to that world, and then come back down into their physical body would have been just the most ridiculous thing they could imagine no matter the impulse though the denial of Christ's resurrection as Paul says here is followed by unintended consequences Paul says that if like these Corinthians one categorically denies the resurrection of the dead one has to get comfortable with a lot of other dominoes falling if Christ didn't rise from the dead what makes him better than Plato Socrates, Tacitus, or Herodotus, or any of these folks that you might have had to read in grade school. Why believe in him, right? You can 
read Plato and Socrates and think these guys said some nice things, but nobody in their right mind would say that they believe in Plato or Socrates. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, what makes him any different than these ancient writers and philosophers? If Christ wasn't raised, we're saying, and we're saying that he was, we're misrepresenting God and we're slandering him, which is surely a grave sin on its own. It's like uh, denying the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. It's like if you give a mouse a cookie, right? Like we read this book to my son all the time. You know, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. And then all of a sudden, like the mouse is sleeping over at your house. If you deny the resurrection of the dead, all these other dominoes will fall as well. A denial of any cornerstone truth of the Christian faith always leads down this path. Deny the resurrection, other dominoes fall. Deny the doctrine of scripture, same thing's gonna happen. Deny any aspect of the doctrine of Christ, down the slippery slope we go. Exhibit A, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. It is indeed a slippery slope. Now, I don't think this always has to be denying some creedal aspect of the faith. There are times where we send down a slippery slope when our own unbelieving hearts, our own fickle hearts, struggle to believe the truths of the gospel, either outside of us or inside of us. <clears throat> so, all of this, verses 12 to 19, 12 to 16 especially, in this first section of the first section, is super crucial. That's why Paul makes such a big deal about it. But the issues Paul mentions in verses 12 to 16 seem to me to be primarily external, right? They're, they're issues that we can kind of separate from our own experience of Christianity, or at least that's the case for me, right? Um, I can kind of cordon off verses 12 to 16 and those denials and kind of place them outside of myself, Right, if I deny the resurrection, I'm misrepresenting God. Okay, like, but what effect does that have on me and my own experience of life? If I deny the resurrection, <clears throat> my faith is in vain. Okay, but if it still works for me, then it works for me. Verses 17 to 19, though, I think is really where Paul starts to press the truths of verses 12 to 16 home into our actual Christian experience. Here, he brings these doctrinal chickens home to roost in our hearts and souls. If the resurrection is a sham, then Jesus hasn't been raised. If Jesus isn't raised, then you and I are still in our sins. We bear the guilt for our sins, and we are still under their power and dominion. They haven't been paid for. We are still accountable for them before God. If the resurrection isn't real, all who have died, who have fallen asleep in Christ, are gone. They're gone forever. Every funeral you've been to, every time you've said, we will see that person again, is false. If the resurrection is a sham, then all of your worst dreams and nightmares are true. Christians, if the resurrection is false, are to be pitied, Paul says, more than anyone else in the world. 
If the resurrection is false, we have no hope. To put it bluntly, just grief, just despair, just nothing. There's no light at the end of the tunnel if the resurrection isn't true. It's just tunnel forever. All darkness, no light. <clears throat> Chimamanda Adichie, the famous African novelist whose TED Talk is featured prominently in a Beyonce song, actually, um, lost her father during the summer of 2020 to kidney disease. She's recently written a short little book about it called Notes on Grief, in which she kind of reflects and processes um, the experience of her father's death and the grief that came with that and followed it. She writes transparently, quote, I'm afraid of going to bed and of waking up, afraid of tomorrow and all of the tomorrows after. I'm filled with disbelieving astonishment that the mailman comes as usual, that people are inviting me to speak somewhere, and that regular news alerts appear on my phone screen. How is it that the world keeps going, breathing in and out, unchanged, while in my soul there is a permanent, permanent, never-to-be-ended scattering? I think we're all probably familiar with this kind of feeling so often accompanies grief, hopelessness, and despair. In fact, we might even say that between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, this feeling is standard fare with regard to the human experience. Grief feels like it's around all of us, ready to pounce at any moment. The last two years, I think, have shown us that intimately. Nobody has to reach back all that far into their own experience to track with what Chimamanda Adichie is saying in that quote. The real hopelessness, though, is that without the resurrection, that's the end of the story. Without the resurrection, there is permanent scattering, permanent rips in our soul. Your story, my story, the story of all those we love without the resurrection ends a lot like notes on grief, Adichie's book. This is the last sentence, the literal last sentence of the book. Like after it comes like the note on the typeface where it tells you what kind of font they use. Like this is the literal last word she has. I'm writing about my father in the past tense. I cannot believe I'm writing about my father in the past tense. Without the resurrection, that's where we are. We're speaking about those we love in the past tense. We're speaking about our hopes and our dreams in the past tense. We cannot believe that we're speaking about them in the past tense. Praise God, that's not where Paul ends this story. He'll go on in flowering, gorgeous detail in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 um, to kind of describe what is waiting for believers, for those who are united to Christ. And the rest of the chapter is super important, but I think for tonight, verse 20 will do for us. 
After all this hopelessness, verses 12 to 19, we get verse 20, beginning with perhaps the greatest three-letter word in the Bible, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice how Paul starts this verse off off with the word, but. He's making a hard and decided shift from the hypothetical hopelessness of verses 12 to 19 and moving us into new and brighter and more joyful and more triumphant territory. Verses 12 to 19, Paul says, is not for you. It is not for Christians. It, verse 20, that is what Christ has for his people. Something super interesting to me about this verse is the certainty with which Paul speaks. There's no, you know, like, yes, like not good news, verses 12 to 19, but like, you know, you can, you can experience this resurrection in some kind of emotional way, and if it works for you, great. It, you know, it might not work for me, who knows. Paul begins verse 20 by saying, but in fact, there is no uncertainty For Paul here, there is no conjecture. Christ's resurrection is indeed a fact. This means three things based on what Paul's already said. So if you get like literally nothing from the rest of this tonight, take these three things with you. This means one, that your sins are really taken care of. If Christ has risen from the dead and he in fact has, your sins are really and truly taken care of, paid for, nailed to the cross. I really want you guys to get this. It's, it's very easy to kind of abstract something that happened 2,000 years ago in a different world, right, across the globe. But Jesus really, on Easter Sunday removed his funeral garments, set his feet on the sandy earth inside of his tomb and walked step by step by step by step from where he was laid to the entrance of the tomb. And in doing so, was raised for our justification so that you could be completely and totally righteous before God. Not just so that your sins would be forgiven, but so that the Lord would look at you and see not all of your bad deeds and all of your half-cooked good deeds, but everything that the Lord Jesus has ever done. Okay, first thing. In fact, Jesus has risen from the dead, and so your sins are completely and totally paid for. Number two... Christ's resurrection means that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not fully, finally, and ultimately perished. They're gone from this earth, and that's terribly sad, but they're not at all gone forever. That's why Paul euphemistically throughout his letters, instead of saying died, uses the phrase fallen asleep. Christ defeated death for you and for me. And in doing so, he has defeated death's ultimate claim on any of us. Yeah, we experience death and we feel it 
deeply, and we should grieve over it. Jesus himself does it in John 11 when Lazarus, his dear friend, dies. Now, Jesus knows Lazarus is about to die, and he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet Jesus still feels that grief. Grief is a biblical emotion, and it's right to feel it. But at the end of the day, death is nothing but a conquered king. Okay, number one, if Jesus is raised, your sins are really paid for. Number two, if Jesus is raised, then those who have perished in Christ are not gone forever. Number three, if Jesus is raised, our hope is not hemmed in by the circumstances of this life. The hope that Paul talks about negatively in verse 19, the hope that we don't have if Christ isn't raised, is not the hope of a Christian. That hope, without the resurrection, is nothing but the crutch. It's a nice story to put you back to sleep at night when you wake up and your mind's racing. It's fit for nothing better than the frog and toad book that's on my son's bookshelf. That hope is not a biblical hope. The hope we have in Christ because he has been raised is a real, living, robust hope. Not only that our sins are, fit, are paid for and that those in Christ have merely fallen asleep, but a hope that Christ will come again and make all things new. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, to make all the bad things untrue. That's what it means to be the first fruits of something. Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of our resurrection. A more modern translation might be to say down payment, right? Jesus' resurrection is the assurance, the stamp, that all of us will one day, at the last, be raised anew. Paul will go into further detail in verse 15, but or in chapter later in chapter 15, but First fruits are inextricably connected to the rest of the harvest. Farmers in the ancient Near East would take their first fruits to lenders and say, This is what the first fruits look like, so you know the harvest is going to be good, right? And then they would get a bigger loan as a result of that. The first fruits and the harvest are considered together. So, if that's the case, Everything that is true of Jesus' resurrection will one day be true of your resurrection and my resurrection. Jesus really died. He really died. He flesh and blood. God, man, died on a cross in, in Jerusalem. But contra these Corinthians, sometimes our own unbelieving hearts, Jesus really rose. As the hymn says, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. So shall you, so shall I, so shall all who have died in Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.